Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical contexts here on Resonance 104.4 FM, still London's best and brightest radio station after more than two decades on the air. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, introducing this fourth series of Suite 212, launched here on Resonance back in July 2017, and only now getting onto a subject that I've wanted to cover all along, the state of poetry and poetry presses in 21st century Britain, in the wake of Brexit and the pandemic, the age of austerity, and more widely. We're still not back in the Resonance 104.4 FM studio, which is perhaps for the best, as I'm a little ill today, uh, as you may be able to hear, although uh, fortunately not with the dreaded COVID-19. Um, at least that's not what the test says. Uh, but anyway, joining me via the safe distance of Zoom are two of my favourite contemporary poets working in the UK, uh, Ed Luca and Nat Rahar. So Ed Luca is a poet and writer based in London. He runs the poetry events platform and radio show Rivet. His work has recently appeared in Spam Magazine, Erotoplasty, Poetry Magazine, 3AM and others. His first full-length book of poems, Heavy Waters, was released on the 87 Press in 2019. His newest collection, Other Life, was published this year on Broken Sleep Books. And he can sometimes be found of an evening uh, playing Seven Aside, either with or against me as fate dictates. Um, Nat Rahar is a poet and activist scholar based in Edinburgh, Scotland. She's the author of three collections of poetry, Of Sirens, Body and Fault Lines, published by Boiler House Press in 2018, Counter Sonnets with Contraband Books in 2013, and Octet, via Books in 2010. Her creative and critical writing has appeared in South Atlantic Quarterly, Map Magazine, Transgender Studies Quarterly, we Want It All, an anthology of radical trans poetics, published by Nightboat in 2020. Uh, the On Care anthology, published by Mar Bibliotech in 2020. The New Feminist Literary Studies, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. And Transgender Marxism, published by Pluto Press in 2021. Nat co-edited Imagining Queer Europe Then and Now, a special issue of Third Text Journal in January 2021. And is the co-curator of Life Support, Forms of Care in Art and Activism Exhibition at Glasgow Women's Library, uh, which is currently running there uh, until the 16th of October. Uh, she also co-edits Radical Trans Feminism Z. So Ed and Nat, uh, welcome to Week 212. Hi. Hello. Thank you. Thank you both so much for uh, for joining, joining me today. You know, I've been friends with both of you and fans of your work for some time. Um, so I'd like you both to you know, introduce yourself and your work to the audience now. You've both picked um, at least one poem of yours and maybe um, something else as well um, to introduce you and your work and maybe who influenced you. Um, so Ed, maybe I will, will turn to you first if you'd like to explain uh, what you're going to, to read to us and, and then read it. Great, so shall I start with my own poem? Yeah, so I wanted to read uh, a poem uh, for the for the theme. So, because today we're talking about poetry within the context of Britain and, and politics and austerity, um, I guess I chose a poem from my book Other Life, where I was kind of thinking through, in some way, the relationship between um, the kind of 
self-elected uh, radical and uh, and the, the kind of more the more kind of pervasive radicalism of, of everyday life as it sits outside of the kind of self-elected radical. Um, so it's called Song for No One in Particular. Um, and I think I think the poem itself is is it, it has an argument within it, so I don't want to explain what it's trying to do. I'm just gonna let it do it. Um, song for no one in particular. I am starting from the question, are the intellectuals the enemy of some possibility of commonness against their best wishes? How do you get them to throw down, pulled away from the pit of thoughts production into the dance? Heal yourself and move or move to break yourself, the same proposition. And what some commons means is, oh, you are stoic in the face of isolation and loneliness is not universal, but constituted by its diffusion, marking the spaces between. The temporary breakout, which you felt as the tonal rupture, but we stand on our word together with the word being the communion and there is lack where we look for it as the lines move to demarcate loss, getting thrown around like a dance. Joy to stand against the lack there is, which we incessantly will to find, mastering the pen for our soft-fingered prisons. That's how it works out. So many falsehoods to try on, where the dress-up is always disregarded as surface play. Yet how do you get to wear down this life of the wronged round the best way back to the way out from which you start from? Distinction and our common touch, both abraded by the stolen life, wishing to sequester yourself behind all those books. We rack our, we rack our knuckles on your door and ask you to get down. So that poem was probably written kind of four or five years ago. Um, and I, I see it as kind of, it was written in, in a sequence of poems uh, where I was, I suppose, in a kind of like transitionary period in my thinking about like the power of poetry and poetry's relation to like, not only politics generally, but just kind of being in a person in, inhabiting a world. And, and I suppose bit before that, um, most of my poetry was often a, a kind of playful exploration of, of um, some kind of like negative or, or abrasive uh, relation to, to the world of experience and social life within our society, you know, like our deeply unjust society, often kind of using humor and playfulness to kind of think through the kind of like most damaging and, and kind of pained experiences of living like a, a life in, in in a society ruled by commodities at the expense of people but and I, I still believe all of that stuff and I still write poems that kind of reflect that kind of playful negative relation to those pain experiences but I became increasingly interested in trying to find like joyful or, or like common or shared experiences that, that, that I, guess, I guess one of the ways I was thinking about this earlier is it's, it's a kind of, it's a common tension in, in the thinking of people interested in radical politics, which is like, 
almost like the methodology of critical theory versus history from below. Like, and they're constantly in tension with one another, which is not to say that those are kind of direct kind of correlates for, for, for the way that those arguments get played out in poetry, because I don't think that poetry does theory, but, it, but yeah, it's, it's a kind of tension um, in my work between different forms or ways of being adequate to the world, which is probably mostly about different kinds of emotional resonances from humor like kind of quite scathing humor to, to kind of kind of joyous and emotive um, bursts of exaggerated or excited feeling. And like, yeah, I've been thinking about this kind of recently and I suppose at heart, like I increasingly feel like a kind of romanticist with poetry in, in a Keatsian way. Interesting, thank you. Um, I'd like to, obviously return to um, a lot of things you've you've said there, but I'd like to obviously introduce Nat to our listeners now. So Nat, if you could um, just tell us a bit about uh, what which work you'd like to read and then share it with us and then tell us a bit about why you, you chose that. Yeah, of course. Hi. Um, thanks for that also, Ed. There's already loads of really nice thoughts in the on the table. Um, I'm going to start by reading nine very short poems that are all nine lines long. So it's this contemporary form called the Niner. Um, it's invented by Mendoza, the poet Mendoza, who will come, I'll be mentioning, I'm sure. And um, I think it it's it's kind of like, it's part of a sequence I've been writing for about four years, coming up to four years um, of 81 poems. And um, I kind of began writing the sequence the week that the kind of trans healthcare collective I was part of were getting dragged through the right wing press in, you know, in a bad way. And, um, and yeah, it, it touches also, I think along a lot of things aesthetically that I'm sure we'll get into further. Um, but I'm just going to read. <clears throat> so how about that flaming global order, contagion of our revolting looks, mouths and passions, your horror that we could bloom scripting lashes in digital from your genes, impure, be light collectivized means to body, urgency scored to futures, revoking your vocabulary. In the attempt to establish norms, I'll guard keep the country moving with contagion, herds excess and slaughter, new floodplains, we dole hounds, surface ruptures, reorient senses, skills, Radical imaginary, belief in chaotic possible. We live fabricating this. And in each extra minute, inhabiting toxicity, sure, capitals youth poisoned, denigrate oxygen and particulates, logic of what years have been stolen from us, our faster conservative deaths, decayed, barren and suckered, tattered palms, sanitized. As all the exits shut, reverse the town hall, each riot van engine removed, chassis neomarine ecology, sensate vessels history, bitter buried sounds, ride it up the walk, seam before tarmac, babe hold, frequencies to be removed from the air. More dependent cages, unwritten 
Victon, stretch verbs revised, bonded, victors, capital, etc. Fly no fl ags as evaporate currency, stone, know this hand. Your devious logics, neo-occupation of words, sentiment, bare grammar of bodies, tangential, trained, maneuvered. Left little of what nutrition, hazel, kernel, cocoa dusk, right relation, reveal hands in depths, pleasure, brown, somatic, thawed out, turn up soil, in spirit, accrued, ancestral, known, re-woke in the days longest, say it, feel music in your eyes, rain, and the hardest truths. And girl, who are you to abandon the beautiful? Jettison ways of being, pursed on edge, on song, speed, surf, ace, divine, tuned, luxurious, the earliest known sensations adorned, silk woven, learning your rhythm from canvas, lubrication for your soil. Oh, tragic national consensus, tearing continental flows, classify, evidence, carbon, date, pulled up medieval bones. An all-inspirited life, we will exercise your explore, rations from all land, ocean, all your orders and abstractions. The disappeared will live. Justice is a demand to unfold, reverse the future. Turn the truth up from soil, in the everyday compelled, all that crashes with pandemic, all that's held against need. And after our affections, dozed regressive history, bloom alternate truths. Okay, so, um, so it's the poems, they're from a sequence called Apparitions or Nine by Nine. Um, part of the reason I chose to read them or that they've, they've kind of been hanging is because, yeah, when I started writing the sequence, it was a real like return to old influences. And I think in particular, um, John Bonney's The Commons, which is uh, was a book that came out in 2011 uh, by the London poet Sean Bonney. Um, Sean is a close friend of mine and Ed's and passed away in 20, at the end of 2019, just before the pandemic kind of began. And um, I think just like Sean's been such a key poet for understanding both, not only just for political poetry, but for like our personal understandings of like how the world's been unfolding and the politics of it in the past, like, um, I guess the past the past 10 years, I, I remember I can remember what I was doing the day that um, I spoke to Sean on the day that David Cameron came into power. It was very promised it, you know, that kind of thing. And um, just also in terms of this, like, it's also about the situation of like what my relationship was to poetry. Because when I first started going to poetry readings in London in like 2009, when my friends were, t oh, I was going with friends to readings, um, Sean was kind of working through this sequence and was experimenting also with playing with musicians and uh, you know the work was inhabiting these different kind of spaces like the kind of upstairs pub rooms that the London poetry kind of scene has often inhabited but also like 
galleries, some gallery spaces, also like some occupied spaces, like some squats and things. And um, that became like, I guess, like a, a map of like where where poetry could live and where poetry did live and what it sounded like and what it could do and what it could tell you about the way things are or were or could be. And um, that's, I guess that's, that's like why, that's, I guess why it felt important, why poetry became important or felt important and for one reason, at least the political reasons. Um, and yeah, and that the commons was this, is, a, is ultimately a sequence of sonnets. It's like about these contemporary experimentations in form that are also taking place and are very present in London and also like, you know, heavily influenced what I was, heavily influenced what I was doing. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm like, there's lots of clipping. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's, that's partly why, and it's also just cause it's like this work that's unfolding and I'm still trying to figure out, I'm, I'm nearly at the end of it. I'm trying to figure out what my relationship is to this, this work, something that I literally just wrote last night. And, um, so yeah, and it's also just trying to understand like just that thing that sometimes poetry knows more about the world than we do, or as I think as poets, like there are sometimes you stumble into something in a poem, which you're like, oh, that's an idea. Oh, that that explains something or says speaks to something that's happening or has taken place or the way that something comes together in life and um that's yeah and that's that's i guess the the why experimentation is important for me or why i find it important or why i find it important in other people's writing too yeah. great um i mean there's something i'd like to to ask uh, both of you um about uh influences and this springs from the fact that um, all three of us uh, have spent time at the University of Sussex. Indeed, Nat, you and I uh, graduated from our PhDs uh, on the same day in January 2020. Um, and I think all of us uh, came into the orbit, at least, of, um, of Keston Sutherland, um, who was a very interesting, even very politicised, uh, very linguistically sort of exuberant poet and, and delivers his spoken word performances with, with sort of extraordinary uh, zest and energy. Um, Keston um, himself was obviously influenced by J.H. Uh, Prynne, uh, Jeremy Prynne, who um, I met through through Keston once or twice. And Ed, I know you've, um, you've written on extensively. So um, Ed, maybe you'd like to come in first and just talk a little bit, we've, we've got a few minutes here, uh, about uh, the sort of influence of that circle of, of poets on 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 your work yeah of course so uh i did my undergraduate at sussex back in 2005 to 2008 and i arrived in brighton as a teenage anarchist uh and left as a as a well-versed marxist kind of uh yeah and and that was keston i i was taught by keston for many courses in my second and third year, and he's he's still a, a good friend, and he he was uh, hugely influential on on many of us at Sussex at that time in getting us to write poetry, both as a as a poet and a scholar. Um, and yeah, he so his his influence on that point in my life was was profound and. Uh, and I'm really grateful for that. And yeah, he, he not, you know, not only did he get me interested in like the weirdest poetry I'd ever come across. I remember, I remember him introducing us to lots and lots of poets. And, and, and I, I had an interesting kind of 
strange noise music and, and, and free jazz at that age already, you know, 2005, 18 year olds in Brighton, you know, like everyone's li listening to the weirdest stuff. But yeah, I mean, and Keston liked that music too, but yeah, his, his relationship to poetry was very much like that. Like, oh, you like this Peter Brutzman LP? Why not read this Stuart Calton pamphlet? Or, I mean, you know, not that it worked exactly like that, but he was very generous. Um, and yeah, he got me interested in writing poetry and taking it seriously and thinking that that was something really worthwhile. Uh, yeah, but not only him, many other people at Sussex too. There was a very strong culture uh, and, and, and there still is a strong poetry culture in Brighton. And then Prin, I wrote my PhD on Prin's relationship to American poetic modernism, specifically Ezra Pound and Charles Olson, two huge kind of figures in, 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 in poetry and, and put a lot of energy in, into that uh, in, in, in a way that um, I'm really glad that I did, but I'm not, it, it helped me learn a lot, maybe. Uh, I, I think Prin is a very important poem, but he, his biggest influence on me has perhaps been as, as, a, as a reader of poems. And uh, I, I have a lot of complicated thoughts about his poetry that maybe would be a, for another time to expound on. But I, I'm, again, hugely grateful for, for, for the, his influence, especially as a reader. I think he's one of the best readers of poetry. Yeah, um, oh, it's, it's hard not to turn it into a really personal story, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I guess my, so my relationship to Sussex and to Kesson Sutherland, and we're also going to talk about institutions, I guess, in this, in this context, um, is that, you know, I, so I, I kind of like stumbled into poetry, and maybe this is me continuing from the last section, um, through, I guess, in particular, meeting other writers in London, um, often other trans and queer non-binary writers who now identify as non-binary as well. Um, but at that time were trans, queer, genderqueer writers, uh, in particular, Poet Mendoza. And we were like, you know, it was this thing with, um, my relationship to writing was, was kind of primarily through music and to kind of shift to like a focus on word and the page and what that means or whatever. And also performance and reading of texts. Um, was kind of heavily just influenced through this, like going to readings in London, like as many readings as we could go to that were happening, finding out who these poets were, what they were about, what their aesthetics were like, what their poems were about. Um, and yeah, so I remember going, going to see Kirsten Sutherland read at a night called Open Hand, which took place at the Foundry that um, Steve Willey and Alex Davis, Alex Davies used to co-organize. Um, and yeah, just, I think, oh, did I see Kesson? Anyway, just something along those lines. I'm just say opened. Um, but long story short, basically I was, the the really kind of pivotal point for me as a writer is that I went to read it, I got invited to read at the Sound Eye Festival of the Arts, which was a festival that took place in Cork for about 20 years, wrapped up in 2017. Um, and it's it was very closely allied to, it was a poetry festival and there was kind of like art, film, music or sound um kind of taken place in the, in that same context so it felt very like organic it felt like a space that made sense to me um in terms of what i cared about and i think i was just like i just want to commit my life to poetry so uh and keston had read that festival and so had some other people from sussex including sarah krangle and i was just like i'm gonna go do masters 
because uh, my my undergrad was in the sciences like I don't have a literary background from that sense so I like and it kind of made sense for me to go and study at Sussex because it was like I was interested in the theory I also studied philosophy like when I was younger and I was really interested in the theory and I was like I could get in on a writing program with my pro- pro- with my portfolio but I can't get in with I can't get into an English degree with my credit with my credentials so Sussex was this like I was described it as like a creative writing degree, a critical theory degree in disguise as a creative writing degree. Um, so that's that's what I signed up for. And it, it really worked out as studying like, yeah, studying also like post 1950, like American writing, like in the legacy of, Ol- in the lineage of Olson, Charles Olson, who has mentioned already. And yeah, just like that's, so that became like, yeah, that became a really important place, but it was also not the only place that I was getting my like, literary slash aesthetic education from and this is during the student movement as well right it's 2010 so like every week things were unfolding in the world and we were like understanding what was happening and Sussex became this like microcosm of neoliberal management and stuff and we were trying to understand those all those things so it was like on the one hand the education and sure being in the institution but on the other was like understanding what was happening and the kind of political education we were getting both through our relation to that institution and also like through what was happening on the streets in London and the student movement in 2010, 2011, that period. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's all really interesting on, on the sort of background at, at Sussex in the, the sort of 2000s through to the turn of the decade. Um, I'd like to maybe uh, bring the discussion uh, slightly closer to the um, the contemporary now. And I've got I've got some notes about, you know, questions around how poetry can be politically useful and, and that's sort of simultaneously a very big question and perhaps also a slightly trite sounding one. Um, so I think it might be interesting to, um, to make it a bit more specific. Uh, Ed, you have picked out uh, recently um, that there's a chapter on poetry in Lola Olafemi's recent uh, book for Pluto Press, Feminism, Feminism Interrupted, um, which sort of uses poetry to illustrate the power of of imagination in, in political thinking. Um, you know, I often think of sort of some of the power of um, of Jeremy Corbyn's campaign in the 2017 general election, I think was was drawn from sort of quoting from sort of popular poetry, but, um, uh, and you know, sort of poetry you might be taught at school, but um, Olafemi's uh, range of interests are very contemporary and they're quite wide ranging. So I wonder if you'd maybe like to uh, tell us a little bit about that as a way into uh, this this topic. Yeah, I think I, so. Basically, we we spoke before this meeting about how the poetry scenes or poetry worlds in in England and Scotland have changed in the last decade. And Nat and I kind of came up with a generation of an entrenched kind of opposition between experimental and mainstream poetry where those some of those boundaries have shifted a bit but partly because of changes in publishing and the internet and access but also I think because younger poets are less invested in that binary um and uh Lola Olafemi's Feminism Interrupted is is she's you know she's a really smart young scholar and it's a it's a great book which kind of from a younger person's perspective looks back on uh, recent histories of activism, radical politics and feminist organising in the UK. And she has this whole chapter called Arts for Art's Sake, where she basically, you know, having spoken about these very kind of recent histories in terms of organising and feminist principles and activism, she really 
saves this space for saying art and especially poetry have a have a specific purpose or function in relation to politics and it's it's not about being agitprop but being a resource or a space in which the imagination can grow and and, and flourish with, without any kind of express or direct need for a political purpose or function which might reduce it so like art for art's sake in some sense as a kind of yeah almost like a kind of spiritual way and it was very interesting to me that this book was published by Pluto it, it's it's probably sold pretty well and the poets that she's drawing on are like Wendy Trevino, Jackie Wang, Anne Boyer and they're all poets that I love and, and, and care about for their work very deeply uh, and and I, I just think it shows a kind of um making space for the power of poetry as a set of processes, uh, a set of experimentations and a mode of play that is kind of outside of the everyday rules of life and how that's radical and how that's involved in liberatory politics and abolitionist politics. And it, I think it, it marks a kind of sea change in the space that, that poetry is, is given. And I just kind of hope too that like the, the writers living in this country who have liberatory and abolitionist politics can get as much attention as Jackie Wang and Anne Boyer and Wendy Trevino because there's many poets in this country that do. And I'd love to see them as well read as as, Lo, as Lola or the is too. Yeah, and I think there's something. So I think there's something about the health of poetry and the culture in terms of the position of poetry. Sorry to use health as a metaphor, um, but the position of poetry within contemporary um, radical leftist feminist culture, anti-racist um, cultural production as a whole. Uh, that on the one hand, poetry feels relevant. And its political relevance is, I feel like, is not questionable in a way. And in the past, I would have to like defend that really strongly. But now I can just be like, no. And I think this says a lot about this relationship between, on the one hand, like an abolitionist politics. On the other, the role poetry plays in all of our lives as people who are like poets, but we're also like intellectual, public intellectual critics or whatever. And um, that the, these things like, on the one hand, like study, and I don't necessarily just mean that in a formal institutional sense. I mean, like study as in like, you care about the world, you care about what's going on, you're studying it, you're reading some books, maybe you're talk having conversations. Um, that study and poetry are kind of interlinked and yeah, it's, it's really exciting, you know, that there are, I think Lola's a really good, like Lola's a very good example of like up and coming scholars who are also writers, who are also inhabiting, inhabiting this public intellectual space, who are taking up, taking up some space you know um lola's uh, co-curating the revolution is not a one-time event series it's currently happening through somerset house right in this month in september is it thursdays somebody somebody, somebody correct this please tuesdays tuesdays thursdays sorry i haven't got my diary together as, as a resident of somerset house studios i should know but um i don't yeah <laughs> anyway so check it out that's happening revolution is not a one-time event and and yeah and that like this relationship of like you know poetry is not poetry is really key in this political culture in this uh, specifically if we're talking about abolition and we're talking about social transformation in the world we want to see um yeah i think that's and ed's right there are all, loads of there are loads of great really great writers in the uk and in europe um, elsewhere to making this work and making making similar work there's something about the question about publishing maybe we can talk about that later um that is about like 
you know why <laughs> why certain writers have emerged in certain and i do think it is also like maybe a publish publisher's interest in north america over what's happening in the uk both in terms of poetry like i'm talking about uk publishers as well like poetry and also political thought but maybe that will change but you know it's all good it's all good and yeah <laughs> i don't know what i can add Okay, well, I'd, I'd like to just come in there just to uh, remind listeners that you're listening to Sweet 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm talking to Ed Luca and Nat Rahar about the um, state of poetry and its relationship to politics in 21st century Britain. Um, so that's an interesting point you, you just raised there, uh, both of you, and uh, now, especially about this sort of transatlanticism and uh, and the role of, of publishers and um, the way, like you say, a lot of publishers are focusing on, on North American work. It definitely feels to me like there's been a sort of cultural and contextual shift because I think back to, uh, yeah, the, the early to mid-2000s when I was in the orbit of, of these poets of Sussex who I mentioned. And, you know, they were doing formally and politically very interesting work, but it didn't really feel to me that they... They maybe had the kind of reach um, that that they do now. I think some of those same poets have a lot more reach now. I think, and that's partly because um, certain types of political cultures have have emerged um, due to you know socioeconomic shifts uh, since since the mid two thousands that have maybe given them uh, a bigger political infrastructure to plug their work into. Um, I don't know if there's anything to be said about the internet and how um, how poetry as a form. Uh, is is well suited or not to being uh, shared online, and you know whether that can can lead to um, works reaching audiences that you might not necessarily have expected. Um, but I, I, I think I think I you know I'm coming back to that question of sort of the divide between bigger and smaller poetry presses and and what they're publishing. And I wondered if there's um, if there's much more to say about that at this point. Yeah. Um... It's interesting because I think the internet always comes up and yeah, the the internet's also evolved so much in the period you're talking about from like the early, from the start of the 21st century into where we are now, 2021 on Zoom. And the, the poetry is also like, so there's the two things. So on the one hand, like, you know, it's that thing like poetry is the cheapest art form. You just need a, a pen and, and a moment, you know, you don't even need a lot of time. You just need a moment. Um, or, or a phone, you know, I used to write exclusively on my phone. And uh, the internet was obviously, is also like, the internet is, is free or can be free uh, to a degree, it's not always free. But you know, the, the um, me and Ed both came up in this time where like all the poets had a blog, you know, I'd be reading like Sophie Robinson, Sean Bonney, all of their poems on their blogs, like whilst I was at my minimum wage job, slacking off, right? That's, that's been, so, and that's 10 years ago. So like, Moving on now, it's like, obviously, there's a the whole thing about the Instagram poets. Um, so Maya wrote a really good essay on this a couple of years back. It's in Poetry Wales um, about, like, how Instagram is functioning and its role. We could talk about that as well. But, like, I think there's, there's so that on the one hand, the internet is, is an alternative, is a space. It's a space that feels democratic, even though it's kind of not. You know, we all, we all know it's not. Um, and simultaneously, publishing remains relevant because books have a different reach and my most I can just give an example like this a couple of weeks ago I went to Lighthouse Books which is like the independent bookshop in Edinburgh and I bought a copy of and it's, uh, it's like 
a selected June Jordan and an Audre Lorde book republished by Penguin. I'm just like, what is this world that I can just go into my like, you know, indie indie bookshop and find find a book of June Jordan. And it's just like, you know, for the last five years, like the only way you get a copy of June Jordan is like out through one of the poetry libraries. You know, there's only like two or three in the whole country. And and then and, and then you have to give it back, you know, long live libraries. Um, but and that's that's interesting because on the one hand, you know, again, it's like this republishing of like really essential um, and we're talking like specifically like black women of color feminist writers um, from the last 50 years uh, who were based in North America and Turtle Island and like um, being and it's great that they're here and we can read them you know anyone can go into a bookshop and buy a book of Audrey Lord these days it's great um, and yeah that's it's it's something about how all these audiences come together and um, what publishing is doing and you know there aren't there are some controversies around this as well like there's been a whole recent controversy about the translations of um Norbesta Phillips Zong into Italian Norbesta's been writing on about it on Facebook I definitely suggest you go and have a read of what she's been saying so publishing isn't also totally neutral especially when we're talking about living poets um but it is good that writers who've, like the contemporary writers especially if we're talking about you know um Decon like not just decolonizing but like challenging the canon like dismantling the canon and it does feel like there's the I mean there's a big space isn't there there's a big space which is the like um where are the interesting contemporary writers coming up from Europe now and I think a lot of us are still working right publishing with indie presses independent presses or small presses um just because you know basically big presses care about sales and we're not in poetry for the money you know like there's, there's no you know po poets don't make money and uh yeah and and so there's but then there's some interesting presses like ignite have been doing some really interesting stuff in terms of their kind of model and what they're doing how that's come together and that's also you know the people who've established ignite have also been working in publishing before um yeah yeah and it does feel like there are a few books that are sneaking out like i'm looking thinking about jay bernard's surge you know that um, is one and it's it on the other hand like it's good when people do get published by by majors because the work is available and yeah I just want to see more like interesting like black and brown and and POC and queer and trans like uh, and you know disabled and crip and mad writing <laughs> coming out from those presses just but uh, yeah how that how that will happen or not we'll see but yeah yeah, loads to kind of follow on from there, from that. I think that kind of summarizes some of the changes or, or tendencies quite well. There's like a really healthy, flourishing, small press culture at the moment. Um, I'm really impressed by the amount of work coming out from younger poets. Um, uh, and they're really invested in maintaining histories as well. Like I, I love what Spam Magazine are doing. I love what... Um, Tom Crompton and, and Dom Hale are doing. Um, Luke Roberts is Distance No Object, publishing a lot of good pamphlets. Um, and with that, and there's many other people too. Um, but but with that kind of small press culture, there are there's since the kind of demise of the kind of independent bookshop slightly, there's problems with distribution and, and, and loads of those poets publishing in small presses have the freedom to kind of work on their practice and 
and create more more kind of like kind of create more freely you know no one there's no editor with sales demands telling them how to write so you get this much more organic practice but a lot of that work I'm it's just like 100 people are reading it because there's 100 copies available and I I I wish I wish I wish that work was more 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 available and as Nat says if you have Jay Bernard's surge on Chateau and Windus suddenly thousands of people can read it and that's great because that's a really brilliant book and Jay did loads of research in the State Watch archives at Mayday Rooms to write that book and it's a serious yeah, book and, and um George Padmore Institute as well yeah yeah um sorry can we and, just I, I think it'd be just interesting to just unpack Jay Bernard's surge a bit and what it's about yeah yeah of course um I was also going to say we should also do a, uh, explain what small press is. So maybe I'll do both mm. those. So small press, the idea of small press is it's basically like zine culture, but in literature, um, in short, you can just, anyone can start a press. You basically need access to a printer and some word processing skills. And uh, small presses vary massively from like people producing 30 pamphlet under a, under a label to like people producing, you know, a couple of hundred, maybe even up to like five hundred thousand print runs of, of a book and small presses, you know, yeah, it's the turnover is literally as the name suggests, small. It's not really about the money, it's more about getting the work out there. And their distribution is massively massively varies and it's mostly about like who wants to how much people want to do. But a lot of a lot of small presses are either at fairs of other small presses, the small press fair in London. Um or doing distribution through the internet, through post, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, Jay Bernard Surge. Jay's, Jay's book is, um, it kind of, I guess the starting point of the book is the history, is, is the New Cross fire, the New Cross massacre in February 1981 in New Cross when 13 black youths were killed in a house fire that were like the community, the local community uh, like assumes had started from a firebomb. And Jay's work like inhabits a lot of the voices of the the youths who died in the fire and is kind of like working through those and animating those. And I know Jay was working on this book for like a period of three or four years. Um, during that time, Grenfell happened. So Grenfell kind of becomes another event that's taken place in the book. And Jay was also, you know, researching a lot about the relationship of fire and bookshops and literature and anti and like how fire is this kind of tool of um, you know, literally burning these like uh, alternative spaces of thought and of like independent press and stuff within the black community in in London. Yeah. So and the books and the books like also rooted in dub and dub poetics and thinking through all of these things and animating them is yeah, it's a really astonishing, astonishing book. It's absolutely a brilliant piece of work, and it was a you know deserving winner of the Ted Hughes Award um, a year or two ago. Um, yeah, it's an absolutely astonishing piece and you know as you both point out the fact that it um it's been published on on chatter and windows and reached reached a larger audience than than maybe would be expected uh feels very significant and very important um we've got about well, just over 15 minutes left uh here on on suite 212 so i'd like to just sort of move the discussion on slightly now um and bring us on to some issues around the um the class competition of the, the British poetry circuit, and you've already sort of touched on, both of you have touched on the economics of, um, of poetry production and how they, um, how they make it appear a very accessible form. Um, this obviously isn't always the case. Um, 
And perhaps we could talk a bit about some of the the funding models, you know, how much is British poetry reliant on the Academy or the Arts Council? What's the kind of class composition, as far as, as you can both tell, of um, of some of the sort of British poetry scenes that you're you're aware of? And maybe we can even talk a bit about how the pandemic's affected this because of the increased competition for um, for funding. Yeah. Um... So I guess, in short, there isn't really much funding for poetry. Um, and in anything that is funded is the exception. Um, I suppose before this, um, before this show, we talked in our emails about how there's many poetry worlds uh, and it would be impossible to speak to all of them. And I know like London has some really rich spoken word cultures um, and events that, that 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 look great but I've, I've you know just because the pandemic haven't been to certain things um but 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 they, but there's like a kind of yeah all sorts of rich poetry cultures in London but I suppose the poetry worlds that I come from most people get into this experimental poetry because they study at university and it, and it really depends what university you go to and who you're taught by um and that um that's perhaps different from how some of those cultures originated. So yeah, the, the, the institution of the university has a very strong kind of control on people's ability to access kind of uh, what should be a kind of more rich and vibrant outsider culture, really. Um, and at the same time, that means that everyone that, you know, a lot of people that like invested in experimental poetry went to university, but equally because they're poets, you have loads of like great, people who who are without any funding for their practice and, and and very broke which might be a good time to kind of introduce the uh poets hardship fund because i know that um that's been an important lifeline in the pandemic to poets who have less of an income so the the lud gang l-u-d-d-g-a-n-g uh have been running the poets hardship fund where they're kind of giving small amounts of financial support to, to poets basically yeah, and I think there's also like, but poetry isn't just in the institutions. I think this is really important. No. Um, I'm also I'm based in Scotland. Like my my perspective and my view is is shaped by the geographies that I'm kind of in, and I'm I'm working as I'm in as a writer, um, both specifically in Edinburgh and kind of more broadly in like Central Belt and through Scotland, and also through the northwest of England. Like there's. I think like in different places, the composition looks a little bit different. So I feel like maybe in the Northwest of England, it's a bit less institutional and middle-class maybe than it might be in other places. And yeah, and I think obviously we're, we're talking about poetry maybe as something that's often differentiated from spoken word, but like that's a whole can of worms in terms of that differentiation and what it does. But I do think, I do think, yeah, on the one hand, like I see a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the, kind of readership no you're not read no definitely not readership a lot of the writers who i've like met who are maybe like the up-and-coming writers from the last five years or whatever um do you feel like they maybe come from a more well-educated or more affluent background like a more middle-class background but then i simultaneously think like there are loads of writers who i met in in like five years ago so definitely especially when i still lived in london especially when you know we were doing a lot of po like poetry was happening in like occupied spaces like within squats within queer squats within social centers and um also on picket lines we've been talking about that 
you know, we can talk about that until the cows come home. And in those spaces, like the people who are sharing their work and who are reading and who are performing, it looks really different because it's really a space that does feel removed as from a, as a, from to a degree from those kind of institutional spaces. And yeah, and I've always, as like somebody who occasionally organizes poetry readings, I'm always really aware of this. And I'm like, the people who I want to come to hear the poetry are maybe not poets, but they're also not going to come to the university to come to the reading. So you've got to have the reading somewhere else. And in practice, like some of the institutions might throw some money at one thing or one person or another in one direction. Like I'll see in the, at the minute, like the arts and experimental writing is like, you know, the arts, arts, institutional arts is way more money than institutional literature. And it's way more interested in experimentation than the literary institutions are. Um, so that, I, I do see some of that as that capture. And I also that that's also related to where I find myself. And then simultaneously, I think, yeah, this question about presses and um, independent or small presses, independent presses, trying to get Arts Council funding to try and make a model that is beyond just like somebody in their room uh, stapling pamphlets and getting, yeah, and really struggling getting turned down. Um, and I think in the past, like, I'm sure if you leaf through all the UK poetry books that any of us or any of you, any of the listeners have at home, like you'll see like, this is funded by the Arts Council, this is funded by Creative Scotland, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Cause that does influence what happens. But I guess poetry is not dependent as an art form on fund, on institutional funding. Um, but then it also, which institutional funding helps, but then it also inflects what the work is like and what's produced and you know, how respectable it is as well, so. Yeah, and um, I know from close contact that, so 87 Press, who published my first book, oh, yeah. Azad and Kashif put loads of work into both kind of making really exciting and interesting work by young writers of colour, queer writers and neurodivergent writers kind of there. And they're also trying to play, you know, play to what people like the Arts Council say they want, but they they struggle to to kind of get funding that they they, they need. But um, yeah, so it, it, I think, and this is only going to kind of become more difficult as the consequences of Brexit sink in, and and you know, like across the board in Britain, there's a there's a kind of looming crisis because running a small business, which is what a kind of more ambitious press is, is really hard. Uh, yeah. And it's only gonna, yeah, it's only gonna become more hard. Uh, and yeah. I, I think I also just want to give, you know, give the readers some, give the readers, give the listeners some clues of that, like ways to do this, if you're thinking about it. Like, there are other ways. Also, you know, if you've got institutional access, and you've got access to a free printer, you're basically sitting on a gold mine. So start a press, you know, and that kind of thing. There are ways of the ways of getting around this and I'd love to see the small presses do more on distribution, just yeah. and especially around on a national level to yeah. indies. Cause like indie bookshops, I mean, yeah, times are hard, but they've you know, the the at least in Scotland, like between category is books, which is the queer bookshop in Glasgow, it's just reopened. You know, poetry's had a really central space in that. Um, our, my good friend Callie Gardner, who, who died a couple of months ago, uh, was running writing workshops in that space. So again, it's like, um, and Callie's somebody who really, really thought about the relationship of the poet and the institution and what that means and how to do creative and critical thinking and work and writing outside of this institutional capital, probably because, you know, like many of us who are early career academics or whatever, that's inverted commas, 
um you know basically we didn't have any jobs so <laughs> so like yeah. or didn't have any actual jobs we had some fractional this and that um but uh yeah and as we a result thought... it just created a different space there are a whole load of other writers in glasgow who've emerged a lot of them are you know emerged you can read their work in um magazines like spam zine and spam also publishing and yeah and and there are there are ways of doing things that don't require money it's obviously like you need time and you know woe is all the poets who have ter- you know shout out to all the poets who have terrible day jobs like yeah mm. i'm also just thinking in terms of what nat says about institutional capture and like being a kind of you know underpaid graduate student we've all had experiences of like you know using our poetry or poetry workshops or academic talks like within institutional spaces because that was what we were told we needed to do receiving not much support from our institution and then at the big kind of end of year department celebration they'll say and well done to the department for supporting Nat Raha or Ed Luca and their great work doing this well, it's like well, you didn't give me any support I well, did they that pick, and you're they gonna pick claim your book it on the ref. Yeah, yeah. They put your book on the ref. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why you put my poetry? But no, no, this isn't my story. But I know another poet who we both know who I'm not going to name, who's like, yeah, my department put my book on my my creative writing book on my my poetry book on the ref. And it's like, come on, like, what is this? Yeah, this is the so, uh, yeah. the research excellence framework, isn't it? Just for, yeah, for those yeah. who are not familiar with uh, with some of the sort of grading uh, techniques for modern universities and the sort of pressures they put on to and um, financing in terms yeah. of like how departments get financing from the central government. Yeah, and yeah, the all it's not just universities; all institutions like to lay claim to the kind of achievements that they never invested any kind of meaningful support in the creation of. Um, and that's really interesting to hear about the kind of Glasgow kind of scene and 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 what Callie was doing and and to just come back to the what I think kind of needs to happen with the kind of more kind of small literature and I think it's happening slowly is and, and the smaller presses is like you know no one no one doing a small press wants to run a business but some part of distribution is is tied up to what gets called promotion and I think there needs to be a bit more joined up thinking actually and I, I think some of the newer presses are doing this kind of much better like but but i think access and you know there's a kind of reticence to get involved in distribution as as a kind of question of access but i think if you put a lot of energy into making amazing radical poetry you want as many people as possible for, to see it and to follow mm-hmm. on from that i think another place where that could really happen is the kind of more established left-wing media right like uh um especially in britain we have a kind of flourishing set of left-wing publishers across Verso, Tribune, Navarra. Like, I want to see these guys pick up some efforts in publishing radical poetry and like not just putting Brecht quotes on the back of your magazine, you know, come on. How long ago was Brecht writing his poems? (laughs) Find some new (laughs) radical poets, please. Like find some new ones because they exist and they're out there. And like, you know, actual people who have not, uh, seen that work might even like it and enjoy it yeah i'd like to see some non-transphobic newspapers also publishing poems by by living poets because it's only the only ones i can think of are all the transphobic leftist ones so i'm like oh, come on um yeah and and yeah and space and i was a shout out more glasgow shout outs shout out to the good press which is a, a bookshop space press and again like i think part of the richness in glasgow is kind of also because the city's just like flooded with like people who do arts and can make a really beautiful pamphlet 
um you know so much love to that and but but yeah also this is about this comes back to politics right because we're talking about distribution really does affect how work gets out and if we're trying to argue that poetry has political relevance in terms of like what it can say what it can communicate what it can tell you about the world what it can tell you about what's happening now what's happened in the past what's going to happen in the future um that's only going to hold if if it can if it can get out there you know and i think that is what we're talking about is that poetry is getting out there and poetry has this cultural position that it didn't have say 10 years ago especially in the kind of like younger like like activists like you know the our, our, our woke friends um but it's it's only gonna maintain itself if if the work can continue to kind of speak to that and if yeah and if other spaces can support that especially when we're talking about there are really good independent media on the left yeah much love more love for poetry yeah i'd love to, i i think poetry is the world the poetry world is kind of partly responsible for its own marginalization at times, whilst also is actively marginalized by other parts of the media or the publishing industry. But like stuff's changed and there's loads of brilliant work out there. Um, I'd like to see the bigger mainstream presses take more risks as well with what they publish um, because they have their powerhouses, they have the capacity. And like Nat said, right, they're, they're publishing Audre Lorde and June Jordan and Penguin published Wanda Coleman. That's great. You know, that's really, really fantastic to see those poets work being more readily available. But like, let's take let's take some risks, too. I think US publishers are ever so slightly better at this, but there's some deep rooted conservatism at the heart of British publishing. And like, you know, we're, we're also literally talking about a political allegiance to aesthetic conservatism that follows from movement poets like Philip Larkin and Kingsley Amos but it's 2021 let go of your you know aesthetic conservative prejudices make weird stuff more freely available that feels to me like a really great uh kind of rallying point and a manifesto to uh, to end the show with um so we'll uh, we'll do that uh, Ed and Nat, thanks so much for joining me today and sharing your work so and your thoughts. Nice. Thank you. It was really lovely to chat to both of you. And I haven't spoken to Nat for a really long time. So it was great to yeah. catch up through, through mouthing off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sweet two, one, two. You know, sometimes it's uh, it's a conversation between between friends, which I think it very much has been has been today. And I think all the better for it. Um, so we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. Um, you've been listening to Sweet 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I have been your host, Juliet Jakes, and um, you can find Sweet212 on Twitter at Sweet underscore 212. You can find us on SoundCloud at Sweet-212. You can also find us on iTunes, uh, and you can also find us back here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Same time, same place next month. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs>